This week, we are going to continue our series through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17, which we've titled, The Armor of God. Last week, we were in verse 14, looking at the belt of truth. We saw how truth holds all things together, that it is the foundation of our faith, that God's word, that Jesus is truth, and in him we can trust. In him we are safe. In him we have the security of truth. We also look at at how truth, being the foundation of our faith, is under attack. How we have twisted it, how we have denied it, how we have tried to minimize truth and make it fit our own agendas. How we've tried to doctor it in our hearts to help us feel better and how all of this does not actually damage truth, it just hurts us. It just hurts our witness, it offends God and, and implies that we know better than he does. We have much to repent of, each of us, when it comes to the manipulation of truth. And yet we are given the belt of truth from our Heavenly Father. He does not keep it from us. He gives it to us, and in the truth, all the rest of the armor of God is held together. For because it is truth, we can trust it. We can rely upon it. Let's read Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, so that we might see see the next piece of armor given to us by God. Ephesians 6, 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. The breastplate of righteousness. This is the piece of armor we'll be looking at this morning, but we're not going to be looking at it through this text alone, for we see this particular breastplate show up much earlier in Scripture. Today our text is going to be Isaiah chapter 59. Verses 14 to 20. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there now. If you do not have a Bible with you, but prefer the tangible feel of the text in your hands, there should be a Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. However, if you prefer, when the time comes, the words will be on the screens beside me. Our text this morning opens up on a world that might feel all too familiar for us, though it is from a book written by an Old Testament prophet. God is speaking through Isaiah to bring attention to the failings, the faults, the moral disaster that is society shaped by human hands. We touched on some elements of the text last week when we were talking about truth, but there are other areas, other realities of our world that are touched on in our text this morning, and it's interesting, it's fascinating to me to see how our God responded back then compared to how he has called us to respond today. Again, our text is Isaiah 59, and we'll be reading verses 14 to 20. If you're able, I encourage you to stand this morning for the reading of the word. Isaiah 59, 14 to 20. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay, wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. 
From the west, people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Thus ends the reading. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. And God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The year that I was born, my parents, in 1983, my parents bought a brand new Honda Accord. It was gray and a little boxy, keeping with the style of the early 80s. My dad loved that car. I'm not sure how high my mother's affinity for it was, but my dad loved it. It was his car. It drove great. The clutch was fantastic. Just had a great feel to it. The seats were comfortable, great on the back. It was a fantastic car. It came with us when we moved to Minnesota so that my dad could attend seminary. And then it came with us to Hagen, Saskatchewan, Canada when he first took his call there. As time went by, it wouldn't be too hard to argue that the gray Honda, as it was referred to in our house, was falling a little out of style. I wasn't necessarily embarrassed to be picked up from school or our friend's house in it, but it also wasn't the coolest vehicle in the school parking lot or on the road either. But that thing never failed. It's a Honda, my dad would tell us when we asked how long it was going to last. And so the miles piled up, but that car just kept on chugging along. As I was sitting in Ephesians 6 this week and doing my exegesis and going through commentaries and looking into the armor of God, specifically the breastplate of righteousness, it was surprising to me, which I guess is a little embarrassing, but, but I found myself surprised that Ephesians 6 is not the first place that the breastplate is mentioned. And this recognition that the armor of God is truly God's armor was, was a little, I, I don't want to say shocking to me, but I just hadn't really thought of it in that way before. At the Christian bookstore as a kid, we'd walk through the aisles and inevitably there'd be an admittedly cheap-made suit of plastic armor that was labeled as the different pieces of the armor of God. And I would beg my mother for them every time that I saw them, like this was what I wanted. And I guess that is just how I pictured the armor of God. I, I had it pictured I pictured it as a set of armor that, that he gives us. So we're all just in these different soldiers, right, decked out in our, our little suits of armor, our own shields and swords, and we, we know that God gives them to us. We know that he provides them for us, that ultimately all of it comes from him. But that didn't stop me from, from feeling some sense of ownership over that armor. It was mine. I was the one wearing it. It's, it's my armor. Given to me, yes, sure, still mine. It hadn't really sunk into my consciousness that, no, this is God's armor, which is probably a little silly because it's in the title, right? Armor of God. But still, looking at it from an individual standpoint, it took a bit to sink in to remind me that it's still God's armor, He's just fitting me with it. These pieces of armor are his, and they have already seen use. 
Our text this morning speaks to God putting his armor to use. We, we see the father, father putting on righteousness as a breastplate and then doling out wrath to his enemies. A sidebar is that I find it interesting to see pieces of armor listed in here in Isaiah that we are not given as part of the armor of God listed in Ephesians 6. In our text this morning, we read that God puts on the garments of vengeance. As we stand in this battle against the enemy, let us remember which pieces of armor we have been given, we have been clothed in, we have been armed with, and which pieces God has kept from us. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And though we may want that particular piece of gear at times, let us remember what we have been given is enough. God has given us what he desires us to have, and he has kept for himself what is his. Now again, this armor that we have been given, this armor God has equipped us with, has already seen combat. It is proven. It has been tested. But it is not ours. It is God's. As we sit in that, pondering this, this breastplate of righteousness, I think it's important for us to look at what righteousness is. We talk about it, it's a word that we find littered throughout Christianese, but what does it mean? Righteousness is defined as the quality of being morally right or justifiable. To be righteous is to be guiltless or blameless. It means to be in the right. It, it is the state of being morally correct. It is synonymous with being justified. If you are righteous, you are not wrong. If your cause is righteous, it means it has no flaws. It is true, it is sound, it is perfect in its intentions and its morality. And so it makes sense that when God is going to battle with the wrongness of the world, that he clothes himself, he, he puts on his righteousness as a breastplate. The core of who God is fighting against the core of what the world has become. Now, a breastplate covers over many of the vital organs. The breastplate protects the gut, the lungs, the, the kidneys, and many other super important organs from frontal attack. But when we think of righteousness and we think of perfect morality in action, and when we think of a breastplate, something that covers our torso, it's imperative, it's, in, it's impossible not to think of our heart. And what a juxtaposition that is. The breastplate of righteousness, God's breastplate covers our hearts. Why is that a juxtaposition? Because church, our hearts are anything but righteous. The heart is seen in Western civilization as the seat of the emotions. That's why we say things like, you broke my heart, and I love you with all my heart. The heart's the seat of the emotions, and so when we do good, it, it comes from the heart. And when we do bad, it's, it's from the heart that we may not like to admit it. And we know, we know that our hearts are not righteous. They do not always want what is right. They want what's good for us, right? Feels good for us. We don't necessarily need scripture to point this out for us either, but whether we need it or not, scripture does a really good job of making it clear. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12 reads, As it is written, there is no one righteous. Not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. 
Well, ouch. Right? Like, that hurts a bit. We don't, we don't like that one. It paints with a really broad brush. The inevitability hits all of us, includes all of us, and that just doesn't seem fair. But deep down, we, we know it's true. Outside of God, who does what is good? No one. But, but pastor, what about when I do good things? What about when we give to the poor? What about when we're involved with service projects? What about when we help our neighbor? Aren't the good things that we do, even though we're broken sinners, aren't, aren't the good things we do righteous? I mean, they're good, right? Well, again, what does Scripture have to say? Isaiah 64, verse 6 reads, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. The Bible's clear. We do not have righteousness. And even when we try to be good, even when we try to do the things the way that God would want us to, we don't have the ability to do it righteously. Our, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We don't have the ability to be inherently righteous. And that's frustrating, isn't it? We don't like that. We want to think to feel like we have some small shred of righteousness in it, like, like some part of it is ours. The time came for me to graduate high school, and I wasn't sure what my parents were going to give me as my graduation present. I didn't voice it out loud, I don't think. Like, I didn't tell everyone, I didn't broadcast it, but I was hoping that my parents would give me the gray Honda. I'd learned to drive in that car, I'd grown up, with it, I was comfortable with it. I was the, the kid that drove it the most. I, I loved that thing the most. It was safe. It was awesome. I didn't mind that it looked a little bit older anymore. That was kind of cool now. But admittedly, it, it was a car. And I wanted a car. I, I wanted a vehicle to call my own. I wanted that freedom. It was time in my 18-year-old brain for my dad to give me the car so it could be mine now. For graduation, my parents gave me a computer. It was a great gift. I, I loved it. I used that thing so much. But I'd be lying if I didn't recognize that in my heart there was a piece of me that was frustrated that my dad had held on to the gray Honda. We want righteousness to be ours, don't we? We want the goodness that we do, the great things that we are recognized for. We want the moral things we say and do to be attributed to us. It's been God's for long enough, right? He's had it long enough. I'm old enough now. I've, I've done enough now. Can I have it now, please? Can I just make my way in my own righteousness? Can I be acknowledged for the good that I do, the time that I put in, the energy that I spend we don't like giving God the glory. We get it. We understand it. But we don't like it. We want the glory. We want to be considered good. We want to be righteous on our own merit. But as our text, as the entirety of Scripture points out, that's just not the reality. We can want it. But wanting something doesn't make it so. The car was never mine. Righteousness was never mine. They always belonged to my respective fathers. How are we doing with that, 
church? How are we doing with the recognition that we cannot be righteous of our own merit? That righteousness is, is given to us. That it was never ours to begin with. That even when we do good by human morally, wor- sorry, by human worldly moral standards, those words, those acts are like filthy rags before God. That's, that's hard to sit in. That, that doesn't sound good. It doesn't, doesn't sound right. And yet it is buckled around our waist, for it is truth. It's a wonder that God hasn't give up, given up on us. It's a wonder that he has stuck by us. It's crazy that he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We can't be morally correct. We scoff at truth. We who, as our text this morning points out, have not pursued justice perfectly, but have in our sinfulness driven it back, pushed it away. We have offended our God. If we read earlier in that passage in Isaiah, we see that we have incited rebellion against our God, that we have been treacherous. We, we who want to claim righteousness as our own, but can't, can't be worthy of him, can't earn his favor. And yet in his great love and his unending mercy, he has given us his favor anyway. And he proved this by keeping the promises that he has made He promised to deliver us, to make us his own, to reconcile us to himself. In spite of all the ways that we have disobeyed him, all the ways that we have hurt him, and he did so by sending his son. He sent his son Jesus, who loved us, taught us, showed us the way to live, and we hated him for it. We betrayed him, we denied him, and we sentenced him to die. Up the hill to Calvary, he went with a cross over his shoulders, but he did not carry just the timber, but the sins of the world. And as the nails went through his hands and feet, and as he was lifted up in his nakedness to be mocked and jeered by the crowd, the Bible tells us that our sin was imputed to him. Our sin was given to him. He didn't earn it, but he took it. Jesus took every time we have failed to be righteous. He took every time we have rebelled, every time our hearts have been bent on us and not on him. He took every time that we have betrayed him, every time we have neglected justice, every time that we have been treacherous, every time we've worshipped ourselves, every time we've acted like his righteousness is ours, every time we've held idols, every time we've chosen not to stand. He has taken every failure, every sin, every flaw, every time we have missed the mark and fallen short. Jesus has taken all of it upon himself. All of it. And there on the cross, he suffered for it. And there on the cross, he died for it. Paying the price for our sin, the price that we have no hope of ever paying. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, and we rest in the faith that he has given us, all the promises of God are ours. Through faith, we live in the fruits of forgiveness. Through faith, the dirty rags of our sins are taken from us and we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, we are brought into the family of God, declared sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. Through faith, we are equipped with the armor of God. All of this through faith, not through works. It's not earned. It is given out of God's generous and gracious heart through the love of the Father. Every illustration breaks down over time. 
The longevity of a Honda has nothing on the eternity and inevitability of God's righteousness. And so eventually the car started to have some problems. It would need maintenance, maintenance that I didn't know how to give her. After graduating high school, I spent some time down in Arizona on a missions trip, and then six months later moved back in with my parents, who had relocated to Olympia, Washington. The gray Honda had once again come with them. And I got right back into the groove of driving that car around as if it was my own. When things went south, when the radiator broke, or the alternator needed to be replaced, or the brake pads had run their course, when the oil needed to be changed, it was my dad who fixed the car. It was his baby. He let me drive it around, but he was the one who maintained it. God's righteousness will not break down or fall apart or die in an accident with my sister at the wheel like the gray Honda did. She's fine, but the car is no longer with us. And so, like I said, all illustrations fall apart at some point. But how thankful I am that it is his righteousness that covers me, not mine. That it is his righteousness that covers us. How thankful I am that it is all on him, for his righteousness is impenetrable. It will not rust, it will not decay, it will not fall apart, it is eternal. It may not always be super comfortable for us, but it will not yield to the blows of the enemy. It is firm, it is a protection for us. And when we rest in that, when we recognize that it is his, that he is the one who maintains it, not us, we do not maintain God's righteousness. We are clothed in it, but it is not ours. When we, when we realize that, what joy, what peace, what hope we can have. Oh, the righteousness of God, protecting even our sinful hearts from the attacks of the evil one. And though we rebel, though we push, though we resist because of our faith, he has not taken his tried and true, his battle-tested righteousness from us, but has instead called on us to put it on and to stand. It's a hard thing to verbally express the recognition that it's God's righteousness, but that it has been given to us. So it's our righteousness, but not because of our righteousness. It's a hard concept to figure out how to express well verbally, but I hope that we're getting it. God's righteousness through faith is given to us. We can rest and trust that his righteousness covers us, that we have been given the breastplate of righteousness, but we just recognize that that is not our righteousness now. It's God's righteousness covering us. So as we stand against the enemy church, as we stand against Satan and his many schemes, may we take heart. For we do not rely in our good works, but on the righteousness of God given to those who believe. It is he who protects us. What a fantastic, gracious, merciful, and loving God we serve. Amen.